0: The reading of God's Word this evening comes from Proverbs chapter 1. If you'd like, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 7. Lend your attention. This is the very Word of God. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing. Father, a great treasure is ours in this word, which you have entrusted unto us. Indeed, a storehouse of treasures, treasures old and new being brought forth. Ultimately, by the illuminating guidance of the Holy Spirit as our great prophet and teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, continues to instruct us concerning who he is the blessings which have come to us in him and what it means to take up our cross and to follow after him in full dependence upon the Spirit's provision. Be pleased to sanctify us by your word, to grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Attend our hearts and our minds. Even now, attend my words, Lord. Enable me to walk by the Spirit, even now. Be pleased to bless your people, for we ask in Christ's name, amen. Turn in the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 37, which we'll read in a moment. But first, our scripture reading, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. This is the very word of God. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Mm -hmm. Short Catechism question 37 asks, What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. And do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Amen. What happens when we die? In Tolstoy's masterful scene in War and Peace... We witnessed the great prince breathing his last with his loved ones around him. And all of his companions react differently. One of his companions, being utterly perplexed by the profound transition that he had just witnessed, continues to ask over and over again, But where is he now? But where is he now? He was marveling at the region into which he had just watched the prince enter. He was just barely able to conceive it by means of a question. He's somewhere. Where? Where? It is a great mystery the soul taking its leave of the body at death. But it's not an utter unknown. We confess each week the Lord Jesus Christ descended into hell. A helpful interpretation of this phrase is he descended to the realm of the dead. Truly. But he did not remain there. For God promised that his Holy One would not see corruption. And thus Christ emerged from that realm victorious such that Jesus tells John... I have the keys to death and Hades. That realm as well is mine. It belongs to me. All authority is mine. In this sense, he's like Gandalf. Gandalf has traveled the mines of Moria and has returned. Not only that, he's defeated the dark lord of Moria. Balin's bane, the Balrog, such that he can and does lead his own safely through the dark, strange, terrifying hall, such that all who travel with him come safely to Lothlorien. in the vision of beauty. When we die, we enter what is called in Christian terminology the intermediate state. That is an unfortunate phrase. (laughs) It's clunky. Lothlorian's much better. (laughs) But already we find that the Orthodox Christian teaching is at odds with this popular notion that the great aim of Christianity is to get to heaven when we die. No, this is an intermediate state. It's true that those who die in the Lord immediately pass to glory. They go to heaven popular parlance. But this is not the great aim of Christianity. The ultimate aim of Christianity is that the whole earth is filled with God's glory, which Christ has promised will come to pass when he returns and ushers in new creation, new heaven, new earth, resurrection, life, all in all. Now that's something. But there is blessing to be had as we consider the clunky phrase, intermediate state. The poetic vision of Lothlorien. There's a rich and unfathomable blessing which opens up to us when we consider the soul takes its leave of the body to be with the Lord. To go home. These are a source of rich comfort for us. Because the truth is, we all must face death. We must watch one another face it, and we ourselves must face it. And Christ would have us equipped with the surest consolations and the surest hope in the face of what can be an unsettling day. But what the apostle says is true. It is better to depart. And be with the Lord. What he says elsewhere. To live is Christ. But to die is gain. So let's consider this blessing which makes death gain. Which is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well first let's grapple with a good reminder. And then let's consider the blessings. First a good but hard reminder. We remind ourselves that we all must die. And that death is not the end. And that's hard to get our minds around. In return of the king, as Pippin and Gandalf remain in Minas Tirith, it appears that they have come to their end. Or so Pippin thinks. Pippin turns to Gandalf and says, I guess this is the end. Gandalf smiles at him. The end. Death is not the end. Death is just the beginning. And he goes on to explain the white shores and the light and the calm that washes to which Pippin says that does not sound so bad and Gandalf says no no not so bad at all and he gets it half right (laughs) for death is the beginning of something more wonderful than we can imagine for those who die in the Lord But for those who die outside of Christ, it is the commencement of something more horrible than we can imagine. There are several difficulties in this, are there not? One is the simple fact of considering that we must die. The other is the nearly inconceivable fact that God has designed the human soul to be immortal. We don't like to think of death, and it's not hard to see why. Death is not natural. It is not just another part of life, strictly speaking. It is an intruder. It is an enemy. It is a curse. Scripture says plainly, it is intimately associated with sin. In Milton's Paradise Lost, sin and death are sort of dark bedfellows. Scripture says the same. The wages of sin is death. So when we look around and we see a culture striving with all of its might to put aside thoughts of death, striving for perpetual youth, glamorizing youth as yet another iteration of the soul's distaste for death, it's not that surprising. Yet once again, God's word is counterintuitive. God's word is plain. It's better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Teach us to number our days so that we may understand aright, right, so that we may get a heart of wisdom. It is appointed for a man once to die and afterwards face judgment. It's only by rightly considering the ineradicable truth of our death that we are moved to approach it rightly and well and with the hope of glory. And that brings us to the second difficulty, which is more of a philosophical kind, but sometimes I like to tickle that itch. It's difficult for us to consider that we are human souls that will never die. To bring a human life into this world safely and swiftly is to introduce a permanent fixture in the cosmos. It's true of every single human being who has ever lived. Each day you interact with human souls who will always be, they will always exist either in a state of everlasting blessedness or everlasting destruction. There is no exception. Those are weighty considerations, even just a glimpse of them. Are they not? Let's move in two directions in the light of them. First, ensure that your everlasting end is secure in Christ. There is nothing more important than belonging to Christ. The second most important thing is knowing that you belong to Christ. <laughs> such that all of life's ills and the great ill of death may be born with the hope that Christ alone supplies. And the confidence to stand in the face of such things. Knowing That my life is in the hands of the one who holds all things. If you do not know Christ, get to know Christ. Your immortal soul depends upon it. If you do know Christ, continue to wrestle truly with your soul and with God's promises in Christ such that you are sure Beyond a shadow of a doubt that you belong to him. Second, let us ask the Lord for a true concern for the lost. Paul tells us in Romans 10 that a concern for the lost is what drives us to send preachers to bear the good news of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we support missionary efforts. This is why as a denomination we collaborate so that we can do good beyond just the efforts of a single church. But let it also inform our prayers. Let it be a constant petition in our prayers. Indeed, this is part what we pray in the Lord's prayer, is it not? Thy kingdom come, the kingdom of grace, may it advance. The kingdom of glory, may it hasten. But let us pray with particularity. Let us not tire of praying with particularity. Petitioning the Lord's mercy upon those whom we love, who we know to be without the hope of glory. That he might be pleased to show them mercy as he showed us mercy. That he might be pleased even to use us as those who give an account for the hope that we have within us. But this is not the main point of this question. The main purpose of this question is to encourage believers by considering the blessings which come to us in Christ on the day of our death. Consider the perfection and the glory that we enjoy when we die in the Lord. What happens to the Christian when they die? Here the question envisions a certain parting of ways you can imagine two dearest companions traveling together, like Frodo and Sam. <laughs> you can tell what I'm reading. <laughs> and they come to a fork in the path, and they know that they must be parted. But they know that the paths will join up again after a while. So each one goes down their allotted path, knowing that, in a sense, this departure is unnatural. And yet trusting the one who works all things for the good of those who love him. Even such a severing of the body and the soul. For a severing of the soul from the body is neither natural nor optimal. <laughs> and yet, it is sanctified unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does the Christian soul go when it takes its leave of the body? Christian soul immediately, immediately enters glory. The Christian soul is immediately perfected and made a participant in everlasting blessedness. We hear this taught plainly in several passages of Scripture. The very verses we just read. Paul writes, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You can hear what he assumes, the parting of the spiritual self and the body, those two paths diverging. Paul says, I would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He says, I continue even when I put off my body. I, me, I continue. My soul continues even as it leaves the body. We also hear that to depart from the body, which is this earthly life, is to be at home with the Lord. It is not to enter a wilderness. It is not to enter a desolate and waterless place. It is to come home. And it is to come home and be with the Lord. In my father's house, there are many rooms. I go to make a place. For you says jesus that is a matter of great comfort for us our death is a homecoming of sorts it's fall homecoming season this fall is actually my 15 year college reunion i will not be going <laughs> reunions take place on homecoming weekend and in their ideal form they have a festal atmosphere and the crown jewel it's the reunion of old friends. Old professors perhaps not, long, not seen for long. There's a certain sense of coming home again. With all its charm and loveliness. This is true in the fullest sense of coming home for the Christian who dies in the Lord. You will leave Behind you, tears. But I don't know that you'll be able to fathom what tears are when you arrive. We also hear in Paul's word that the choicest blessing of this new condition is being with the Lord. In a new and better mode than we currently enjoy. That's plain. Think about who's writing this. Paul, who constantly communed with Christ. His whole life was one of unbroken fellowship with Christ. We have fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. We have fellowship with Christ. I am walking by faith and not by sight. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul says, I would give all of that up to be at home with the Lord. I would rather be away from the body with all of the sweetness of communion that I enjoy by faith and be at home with the Lord and commune face to face. It's the difference between talking on the phone with a loved one but knowing yourself to still be a great distance away, even still. And being face to face with a loved one and enjoying the fullest iteration of nearness. As lovely and as right and as life-giving as our communion with the Lord is by faith now, it is still seeing in a mirror dimly. But then we shall see face to face. Then we shall know as we are known. It's worth noting that this seeing face-to-face brings us very near that glorious Christian teaching on the beatific vision. Don't give that up. Don't give it up. It's Owens. Read Owen. It's Owens. It's ours. Westminster Larger Catechism 86, Westminster Confession of Faith 32.1 both bring this classic Christian teaching into the expression of our blessedness at death, writing, the souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory. That's the standards. They behold the face of God in light and glory. Well, that's something. Certainly there's true consolation there. For those of us who have lost loved ones in the Lord. To consider for just a moment that they now gaze upon the face of God. The glory of which caused Moses' face to shine like the sun. Yeah, there's comfort there. There's encouragement there. We can also note that this teaching of immediately passing into glory. Glory rejects several wrong teachings about what happens after death it rejects the errant teaching of soul sleep have you heard of this soul sleep soul sleep is the teaching that at death the soul passes into an unconscious state where it remains until the day of resurrection you can hear rejecting that with this Insistence that no one no, immediately passes into glory. It is immediately perfected and made a participant in eternal blessedness. Second, it rejects the errors of Roman Catholicism, which imagine several other places of inhabitation for the souls of the departed. Perhaps the most well-known of these is purgatory, of course. Purgatory being a middle ground between heaven and hell. Where Christians go to make a remaining satisfaction for their venial sins by virtue of suffering, torment. Now both errors are refuted in a number of places in Scripture, but consider even briefly, just a simple, quiet, logical, reasonable reading of the thief on the cross. You don't need to be a great theologian. You don't need to have wasted tons and tons of time pursuing a grad degree in theological studies that you may or may not use. All you need to do is know how words work. What does Jesus say to the thief on the cross? He does not say, after a brief nap, you'll be with me in paradise. He does not say, once you pass through the purging fires of purgatory, you will be with me in paradise. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. The sense is plain, isn't it? As soon as this is over, we'll be together in a state the likes of which you can't even comprehend. Paradise. Why? That was the only good work he had done. The thief on the cross. He had merited anything. He acknowledged Christ the King. He acknowledged Christ the righteous one. And he acknowledged himself to be a sinner. And he said, think on me. Remember me. And Jesus said, You're mine. You're fine. Mm -hmm. All who die in the Lord can look upon the day of their death with confidence. Because they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he alone makes satisfaction for sin. And he alone sees his own unto glory. Thus, we can be encouraged. We can let such a truth fill our hearts with longing. Our day of death is a day of entering perfection and blessedness. Consider how even now, the best of us, there is much that is unsound in our souls. Is there not? There is much that is weak and wavering. Much that is foul and broken. How wonderful the thought of being made sound through and through We've all been in homes that are deeply divided. We've all felt the ache of being at odds in a house when a husband and a wife are at odds, when parents and children are at odds, when brother and sister are at odds. It's a difficult situation, not just for those at odds, but for the whole house. The whole house groans, as it were, in the face of such an incongruity. And from a certain angle, this incongruity is true of us in this sad world. Flesh wars against spirit, spirit wars against flesh. Or as Paul says in Romans 7, there are two principles at work in us. And this creates incongruity and groaning. And it's going to be true until the end when we are delivered from this body of death. Is it any wonder that the same apostle said, to die is gain? That it is better to depart and be with the Lord? Can you say it's better? Can we say it's better? I'm not here talking about an unwholesome and a sinful desire to have one's existence blotted out. I'm talking about a faith-fueled conviction that as lovely as my family is, as lovely as the comforts of this life are, far better is it to depart and be with Christ. Because then the groaning ceases then i shall be home if you're anything like me that's not the easiest question to answer Mm. and i trust we all have room to grow in our earnestness in that matter what is it that makes you think wrongly to live is gain and to die is loss. What is it that disorients you to that fundamental question? Ask for the eyes to see that even with the choicest gifts on one side of the balance, they are all found wanting when Christ is on the other side of that balance. Or as one divine put it, God has never made a soul so small that the whole world would satisfy it. May the Lord grant our hearts the vision of Christ now by faith, such that we can say with the Apostle Paul, far better to depart, to be with Christ. So much for the blessings unto our soul. More briefly, our bodies are at rest in Christ. Christ has come not just to save our souls, he's come to save our bodies. (laughs) In fact, that we confess, he took to himself a true body. And a reasonable soul. And thus he redeemed the whole man. He came to save the whole man. For everything he assumed, he redeemed. As the old Christian teaching goes. The question states plainly, our bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. What do we mean by this? That's strange. Johannes Voss explains. This means that Christ still regards the human bodies of his people, even though dead and buried, as something exceedingly precious. Because he intends to raise them up again at the last day. Therefore, he does not regard the dead bodies of his people as something worthless to be discarded because of no more use. But as something valuable to be watched over until the day of resurrection. That's magnificent. In Kristin Lavransdatter, data, the Black Plague comes to Norway. This is medieval Norway. The Black Plague comes to Norway and Kristen hears of a woman who has died by the plague and has, left, has been left abandoned in her home. The townsfolk are afraid to go because they're terrified of the plague. They're afraid to bury this Christian woman. And so Christian, Kristen goes... And with the help of her dear companion, she tends to the body and gives it a proper burial. And in so doing, she contracts the plague and dies. And the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. Christ cares for the bodies of his own, even as they dissolve into their elemental composition. Paul tells us as much in this stunning phrase from 1 Thessalonians 4.16. The dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. He preserves his members even as the individuals see a fate that he himself never saw The dead in Christ, even as our bodies see corruption, he holds us fast, ensuring that the seed planted is kept for the day of full flowering, to use the image of 1 Corinthians 15. Let me make two brief applications from this doctrine. Let me briefly here commend the practice of Christian burial. This is delicate. As no doubt you have known Christians who have opted for cremation. I do not want to upset the faith of any. (laughs) There have been those who have died in flames, reduced to ashes. Christians set ablaze. History is littered with it. There have been those lost to the mystery of the sea, such that their dissolution is a mystery. And dying in these ways in no way undermines this union of the body of a Christian in death with the Lord. And so also, the fact of cremation does not sever a Christian from this blessing. Of dying in Christ at the same time we can still talk about more and less fitting ends and insofar as we have a say in it the, the practice of Christian burial committing our bodies to the earth like a seed as Paul puts it in 1st Corinthians 15 is a practice which is most fitting to the glorious truth that Christ cares for our bodies. They are not something to be tossed upon an ash heap, but rather committed unto the ground as our last declaration of faith that says this is not the end. The resurrection from the dead is the glorious end which I wait, entrusting myself to the hand of a faithful Savior. We can also mark from this teaching the importance of the body. If the Lord Jesus Christ regards the lifeless bodies of his people with tenderness and care and oversight and concern... course he looks with tenderness and care and concern upon our life filled bodies this is a comfort to us for he knows our bodily needs and he supplies them as he directs us to seek them from our heavenly father it is no shame to ask the lord for sleep it is no discredit to ask the lord Satisfaction from food, nourishment from food, the preservation of health, and the restoration when we fall ill. He knows we have bodily needs and He cares for us. But it's also an encouragement for us to present our members in this life as instruments of righteousness. It's no surprising that the same apostle who says, Those who die in the Lord. Will rise first, also says, Glorify God in your body now, presenting your members as instruments for righteousness. For you were bought with a price, and the same price that secures your glorious end now empowers you to glorify God in your bodies. So glorify God in your bodies as we await the glory that he has promised and secured unto us. Let's pray. Sanctify us by your word, O Lord. Your word is truth. Cause your truth to penetrate our hearts, enable us to store it up, and to carry it with us as you send us out into the six days of labor. May we take these morsels, this truth, this hope with us, Lord, such that even now our faces begin to shine. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.